Good morning, everybody, to 2024. If you think you're suffering in here, imagine what Jesus is going through, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be glad to be here rather than headed to a cross. That's all I got to say. Uh, we're closing in on completing the Gospel of John. There are 21 chapters, and Lord willing, we will finish chapter 18 this morning. Uh, the video I showed you uh, is a result of a bad pilot, right? Before we end today, we'll see the results of a bad Pontius pilot. Let me pray for us. We'll dig in. God, thanks for this time we have together. Thanks for those who are here. Thanks for their interest in your word. And we pray that uh, we would understand it as we dig into it and uh, that you would enlighten us and uh, challenge us and maybe even warm us a bit as we're sitting here. In Jesus' name we pray, all right? Let me bring you back into the scene of John chapter 18. It's a courtroom scene. Jesus is on trial now before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. Uh, we have all of the elements of a typical courtroom scene. We have the judge, that's Pilate himself. We have the defendant, that's Jesus. We have the plaintiffs, those are the Jewish authorities who have brought Jesus for this trial. Let me remind you also that this isn't the first trial. Uh, this is one of six trials altogether that Jesus faces before he's uh, crucified. Uh, we're kind of mingling around trial number six right here. Let me refresh your memory. First trial was Jesus before the high priest, Annas. He was the former high priest, uh, but he's uh, clearly the one who has all of the uh, re religious credibility in, in Judaism. Uh, the second trial was before Caiaphas, who is uh, Annas' son-in-law. Uh, and the third trial is Jesus standing before the entire Sanhedrin. Uh, in the earliest hours of the morning. Now, the deal was that no Jewish authority could actually condemn someone to death. The Romans had, took, had taken that away from their uh, authority. As a result, to seek a death penalty, they have to take their case into the Roman civil courts. Uh, so we start at trial number four, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Uh, that's, at this point, the Gospel of Luke uh, informs us that Pilate discovers that Jesus is from up in Galilee. And so he sends him off to Herod Antipas, who's actually Herod the Great's son. Uh, he governs that region. Trial five goes nowhere because Jesus doesn't utter a single word before Herod Antipas. Frustrated, Herod ships him back to Pilate for trial number six. Here's what's kind of ironic. You've got the king of kings, who will one day rule the world uh, over all kingdoms of men on the earth, standing trial before a puny human court. What happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where Jesus stood on trial, is pretty much played out every single day in the hearts of men and women around the world. In the courts of public opinion, and the courts of personal decision, comes the wrestling. And this is what Pilate was wrestling with. What am I going to do with this Jesus? How am I going to handle him? What are my thoughts about him? And dare I let him be king over my life? These have always been the issues at stake for we humans. So as we look at our verses today, and today we're going to begin in verse 28 of this chapter, we'll see a kingdom that's denied, a kingdom that is discussed, and a kingdom that is disbelieved. Let's start with the kingdom denied. 
Here are the Jewish authorities that bring Christ into this trial. We'll start at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That's where Pilate is. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. The day in that verse refers to the ambassadors of the high priest, the Jewish authorities, part of the Sanhedrin. They lead uh, Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. That refers to the praetorium, the judgment hall. It's probably early morning, probably somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m. They didn't go into the praetorium themselves. Why? Now watch this. It's interesting. So they wouldn't be defiled by Gentile cooties. Had they been defiled by Gentile cooties, they would not be able to participate in the Passover meal. The Jewish leaders felt that if they went into the home of a Gentile, they would have been ceremonially unclean. How ironic is that, in my view? They're willing to kill Jesus and push this whole thing through a series of illegal trials, but we don't want to defile ourselves. Weird, right? They can commit to taking an innocent life and fool themselves into thinking that they're not being defiled by that. No, no, they're worried about stepping foot into a Gentile home. Yeah, weird, weirder, and weirdest. They wouldn't go in. So, they're outside of the praetorium, and so Pilate goes outside, in verse 29, to them, and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves. And judge him in your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Okay, so we got these Jewish rulers, the ones that are bringing Jesus into the courtroom scene with Pilate. All of them believed in and anticipated a kingdom that was coming, a messianic kingdom. Trouble is, they have rejected Jesus as that Messiah and King. And here's why. They believed that whoever this Messiah would be, he would bring in an immediate kingdom, an outward kingdom, a political kingdom, a military force. He's, he's going to be able to overthrow the enemies of the Jews, in this case, the Romans. He would push them out of the country, set up his own eternal messianic kingdom headed in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus wasn't looking like he was going to deliver those goods. Well, not in their opinion, at least. Now, let me just sort of kind of trace this thinking. As soon as Jesus began his ministry, one of the first sentences out of his mouth was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he said that, all the Jews began to start having their hopes get fulfilled, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. When he said that, their hopes started rising. Like immediate, this is going to happen really soon, they thought. Maybe this is the Messiah. And it gets to be such that his popularity kind of rose and rose and rose. When he was in Galilee and fed 5,000 miraculously, did other miracles back in uh, uh, John chapter 6, we're told that people tried to take him by force and make him, coronate him as their king. They wanted to bring in that kingdom like right now. But to top it all off, that anticipation reached fever pitch with the raising of Lazarus from the dead 
And then uh, a few days before this courtroom scene we're in, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, and the crowds brought branches and palm branches, and they laid their cloaks down on the path before him. And you remember what they cried out? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They thought at any moment, this guy riding this donkey is going to pull out all the stops and set up this messianic kingdom, get rid of the Romans, give us freedom. But listen, that's not why, and you know this, that's not why he came the first time. He's going to eventually do this downstream at his second coming. When Jesus came the first time, he didn't come to be the ruling, reigning king of the earth, right? He came as what? A savior. He came to deal with sin. He came to rescue people from the penalty of sin in people's lives by taking that penalty of death on himself, which he could do because he was guilty of nothing. He was innocent. He totally fulfilled the law. And that's what the angel said to Joseph. You will call his name Jesus because... He will save his people from their sin. So having rejected Jesus as Messiah, what do they do? Well, what they do, they hold a series of illegal trials, breaking virtually all of the Jewish rules about how to conduct a trial. We discussed that in an earlier message, right? They leveled this sentence against Jesus. They want him killed. But because the Romans had taken away their right to do so, they are forced now to bring Jesus before the Romans in civil courts. That's why they're standing before Pilate. Now, I believe that Caiaphas, the acting high priest, wanted nothing more and nothing less than to see Jesus hung on a cross, crucified. Of course, that was not how the Jewish people typically executed people. You probably know that from the Old Testament, that the Jewish method uh, of execution was stoning Leviticus 24 kind of spells this out. If someone was worthy of, of something that caught, would be a, 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 worthy of death, they would be taken out and publicly stoned. It was a brutal way of execution. Sure, a lot shorter, though, than crucifixion. They probably could have done that with Jesus. Because in a few weeks, they're going to do it with Stephen in Jerusalem. They're going to stone him. My, my guess is they figured they could just talk their way through this with the Roman authorities afterwards. It seems like Caiaphas didn't want to stone Jesus. Caiaphas wanted the worst kind of death, crucifixion, because the law of Moses said this, that someone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. So I'm thinking Caiaphas may have thought, okay, Jesus is really popular with the crowds. Maybe when the crowds see Jesus hanging on a cross, it's going to convince them that Jesus couldn't possibly have been their Messiah. He's hanging on a tree. He's cursed by God. So that was their agenda. They want him to be crucified, and so they bring him before Pontius Pilate. There's an old adage that says this, if you can't find a lawyer who knows the law, find one who knows the judge. Evidently, Caiaphas and Annas know the judge. They know Pilate. They're familiar with him, and they bring Jesus before him. They bring him to the Praetorium, the ancient Antonia Fortress. It's where the Roman soldiers were garrisoned when they were in Jerusalem. Now, Pontius Pilate, the governor, he had his main headquarters not in Jerusalem, but down in Caesarea on the ocean. It's a great place to hang out. I've actually been there. 
But whenever there was a Jewish festival, such as Passover, Pilate moved his headquarters and his troops into Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Easy. If some kind of a riot broke out, or some kind of unrest broke out, he would be there with his soldiers to get it quickly under control. And so the Jewish leaders came, they bring Jesus, and they have to have some accusation, right? That's what Pilate asks. Well, what accusation do you bring? And they said here in John's Gospel, well, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Oh, just, just trust us. We, we got the scoop on this guy. All you have to do is just sentence him to death. That's all we want. That's all we want of you. He's doing some evil of some unspecified kind. Now, John doesn't give us the additional details, but the other Gospel accounts do. Luke records what the specific charges were that they leveled against Jesus. I want us to look at them here in Luke 21, 23. Here's what it says. Then the whole company of them, the whole company of Jews, Jewish leaders, arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, and we're going to see three different accusations that they make charges. Right? We find this man misleading our nation. That's charge number one. And forbidding us to offer tribute to Caesar. That's charge number two. And saying, number three, he himself is Christ a king. So those are the three charges. Let's look at those. Are they uh, legitimate or are they trumped up? Number one, this man is misleading or in some translations, perverting the nation. Is that a true charge or a false charge? Totally false. He never perverted the nation. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to change anything about what was going on in Judaism. I actually came to fulfill the law. I'm not here trying to destroy this nation. This is the nation God has given a covenant to and has given to this earth to bless it. So, number two, the charge was that he's forbidding people to pay taxes to Caesar. Was that true or false? Totally bogus. Remember the time where Jesus is asked the question? He holds up a coin and he says, whose inscription is on this coin? Oh, it's Caesar. Render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. All right? In other words, pay your taxes. So look at the third charge. Jesus, it says, he's claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be a king. Is that true or false? Well, kind of a true charge, sort of. They get it because Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God. Trouble is, they rejected his authority. They rejected his kingship. They didn't want anything to do with him ruling over them at all. Of course, Jesus wasn't looking to take charge politically or militarily. He wasn't looking to start an insurrection against Rome. So what Rome is concerned about, which is its control, really is not at risk. So ultimately, the charge is bogus. You also might remember that before Jesus rides that donkey into Jerusalem, he stopped at the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over the city. He knew what was coming. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, but you were not willing. In other words, your king has come to you, but you would not receive his authority in your lives. You were not willing for me, Jesus said, to comfort you and gather you under my protection and bring in any kind of kingdom from my side whatsoever. So that's the first section of John 18. Um, 
kingdom is denied. We don't, we don't want it. We don't want your kingdom. Kingdom is also being discussed. Let's go to the second round. Now we have the scene where it's Jesus and Pontius Pilate, the governor, face-to-face with Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, having spoken with the Jews out front, who were going to be walking into a Gentile home. He calls Jesus and says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your nation, your own nation, and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So, since he's talking about kingdoms, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So we have here one of the uh, most provocative encounters of two people in all of history. Roman governor who represents the king of the world, Caesar himself, and Jesus, the king of kings, representing God. (laughs) Pontius Pilate is famous because of what you and I are going to be reading, right? In history, Pontius Pilate is one of the most infamous characters, truth be told, We don't know a ton about Pontius Pilate. Uh, We know a few things, and we have to weed through some pretty sketchy information to get those. So I I tried to amass as much as I could of kind of the basic uh, description uh, and snapshot of this fellow. Pontius Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of the province of Judea. He was appointed by Caesar Tiberius to that job in 26 AD. He reigned in that job for 10 years as the governor. But get this. Pontius Pilate was not Roman. He was born in Rome, not. No, he was born in Seville, Spain. Later on, he joined the legions of Rome, the the Roman army. And uh, he got this job he's in now because he married strategically, right? His wife was Claudia Procula, the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus in Rome. So he got the job because he marries the boss's granddaughter. He's placed in this position, right? Biblical passages as well as extra-biblical history paint him as a very prideful, arrogant, conceited, cynical type of man. And some of that is going to be played out as you'll see in our text. We'll see, we'll be dealing with Pilate this week and next week too, right? Okay, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record that the very first question that Pilate asked Jesus was this. Are you the king of the Jews? But all four Gospels also have the way it's worded in the original Greek with the word you being emphasized, emphatic in that sentence. So here's here's a better translation of what uh, Pilate asked Jesus. Here's the correct way to say it. You, you are the king of the Jews? That's how it's written, as if Pilate is in shock that this person could be seen as a threat by anybody to imperial Rome. Here's Pilate with all the authority of Rome behind him. Here's Jesus, peasant clothes, 
stained from the blood and sweat of his prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, with no sleep that night, probably being pummeled a bit here and there through those other trials he's gone through, those kangaroo courts, right, in the Jewish system. You, you are, you are the king of the Jews. Now, the Jewish people have their own idea of a kingdom, right? An immediate, outward, political, messianic kingdom. Pontius Pilate also has his own ideas of what a kingdom should be like, and that's Rome being in charge and in, in, in basically enacting everything they want to do by force. So I, Pilate, am looking at you, Jesus, and I frankly don't see much of a threat to the empire from you. It was interesting that when Pilate asked, are you king of the Jews, Jesus responds as he often did. He doesn't actually answer the question. Instead, he asks a question. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? I love this. Jesus doesn't say, well, yes, I'm a king. Because immediately, Pilate could have thought, oh, okay, great. I see he's guilty. So we off with him, right? Oh, he's, he's in, he's in, maybe he's off to, he's, he's going to try to form an insurrection, lead an insurrection. Maybe there's a case here. And Jesus said, well, no, I'm, I'm not really a king. He would, if he had said that, he'd been denying the truth about himself. So he doesn't answer the question. You know why he does that? Because it's an illegal question. But Pilate asks him. I mentioned it a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, that in court cases back then, as now, you could never privately ask a defendant about the case. You had to have witnesses in the room. This is the precursor to our Fifth Amendment. You can't put a person into a situation where they can incriminate themselves. So Jesus doesn't answer the question, that illegal question. What he does do is turn the tables on Pontius Pilate as if going after Pilate's heart. Let me ask you a question, Pilate. Are you asking me this of your own accord or because you've heard some rumors? Are you willing to entertain the possibility yourself that I might be a king? If so, would you be interested in being a part of that kingdom? Have you really actually thought this all through? And notice Pilate immediately says, am I a Jew? You're accused of being the king of Jews. I'm a Roman. I'm above this. Your own people brought you here. Jesus noticed how he answers his question. So he kind of ups the intrigue. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting to keep me from being fall, falling into the hands of the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. You know by now that one of Jesus' favorite subjects to talk about was the kingdom. You know, for example, the Gospel of Matthew records this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, like 33 times. Mark records it 14 times. Luke records it, Jesus saying it 32 times. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he said, thy kingdom come. I will be done. And then after Jesus rises from the dead, this is interesting, we're told he spent, after his resurrection, 40 days with the disciples. What was he doing? What was he doing for 40 days? We're told what he was doing for 40 days. Speaking about things pertaining to the kingdom. So let's get back to the kingdom thing. Jesus talks a lot about it. He brings it up to Pontius Pilate. Now, what kind of a king is he? Is he a political king? Military king? Is he a king who enforces his rule? No, not yet. Not at least, not yet. He's not that kind of king. He's a spiritual king right now. 
but he will eventually be a world-dominating king. You know that? He will come a second time and become the king of kings and lord of lords and rule over all the nations of the earth. And it turns out he's going to be, if you look at what happens in Revelation, the best leader ever. In Revelation 11, peering into the future, when the angel sounds the seventh trumpet, all heaven breaks out in an anthem. And this is what they say. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's all coming. But until then, Jesus says, my kingdom doesn't come from this world. It doesn't have its authority here on the earth, like every other kingdom on earth has. My kingdom is from another realm, not of this world. So now Pilate is in a bit of a quandary. Because if Jesus had said, yep, I'm a king, I'm an earthly king, it would have been easy for Pilate to say, okay, Jews, take him and we're going to kill him, execute him. But Jesus says, well, I'm a king, but I'm not a king like that. I'm from a different realm altogether. Pilate's thinking, okay, what, what do I do with this king from another realm? How do I adjudicate this case? And to make matters worse, you may recall that Matthew 27 tells us that Pilate's wife had come to Pilate before this trial even began and warned him as if, you know, don't even take this case. You know, have nothing to do with this, and it's interesting what she says, with this righteous man. I suffered many things about him in a dream last night. So, listening to your wife turns out to be usually a good idea. He doesn't follow it. He's got his wife saying, don't do anything with this guy. Don't even touch this case. And now he's dealing with the case. And Jesus says, well, I'm a king, but I'm kind of a spiritual king. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate's response, so you're a king. You say I'm a king, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate's response to that is this. What is truth? Can you hear the cynicism? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, this is interesting, I find no guilt in him. Wouldn't it have been great if Pilate had simply stopped right there? I reached a decision. I've uh, studied this whole thing. I've uh, come to a decision, the verdict. Jesus is not guilty. He's free to go. Shame on you Jews for bringing an innocent man to me. But Pilate doesn't stop there, as we discover. Why? Because he doesn't want to let things get out of hand, something that might get him blamed for something. Over here, you've got Pontius Pilate, the emissary of Rome. Over here, you've got Jesus Christ, Son of God. You've got two people facing off, and what a contrast between the two of them. An earthly ruler, a heavenly ruler. One would do anything for power, glory, honor, and status, the other gave up all of that to come to this world as a servant. One would live only for the material, what he can see, feel, touch, and have. The other says, I don't care about any of that. I'm from another realm, and I'm dealing with different issues. But who is actually in control of this judgment scene? Pilate? No. Pilate really is on trial. Jesus is turning the tables. It's Jesus who's clearly in control. In fact, he's managing all the events of his own death. Jesus, John said this, All of this was done that it might be fulfilled what kind of death 
he would die. Jesus had predicted, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus knew that a prophet had proclaimed in the Old Testament that he would be lifted up, and Jesus understood this to mean and refer to crucifixion. And so God arranges Rome and Pilate and the Sanhedrin and all the Jewish leaders so that all of these prophecies would be fulfilled. Jesus is clearly in charge, and Pilate is clearly on trial. And I think he's feeling very uneasy as he is face-to-face with Christ. Pilate knows this, that Jesus is innocent. Pilate also has come to the decision that even though he's a king, he's innocent of all the charges against him. He had declared that already to the Jewish accusers. Maybe he's even toying with the whole concept of the possibility that maybe Jesus has some beat on truth. Who, Who knows for sure? What we do know for sure is that Pilate doesn't stand up to enforce the verdict of not guilty. He is just rendered. So let's finish this out. Look at the last two verses. This is how the kingdom is disbelieved. Pilate said in verse 38, what is truth? When he said that, he he went out again to the Jews, and that's the problem, and I'll show you why. He said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find him not guilty. In other words, the next words from his mouth should be, case to Smith, free to go. Does he do that? Does he say that? No. Here's what we see starting in verse 39. As he tells the Jews, do you guys have, you Jews, have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover? So what do you want me to do? You want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out, no, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a murderer, was a robber. Now, what he asked, so you want to be released to the king of the Jews? I think, I think Pilate expected them to say, yes, release him. You declared him not guilty, release him. He was surprised, I think, because he didn't read the audience correctly. Instead, they cried out, no, no, not Jesus, Barabbas. They were told that Barabbas was a robber. Other accounts reveal that he was an insurrectionist seeking to overthrow Roman authority over Israel. So how might things have changed if Pilate had asked, Jesus, you talk about truth, what is, what is truth? And then waited for a response from Jesus instead of bolting out. Nope, like a lot of politicians, Pilate lived in the sliding scale of spin. He echoed what many people may say today, yeah, what is truth? As if to say, well, no one can really know what absolute truth is. It's impossible. There's no such thing as objective, absolute truth. It depends on your own personal experience. It's all relative. We had had presidents of three major universities in America speaking before Congress, and they were asked, hey, does does your code of ethics, your code of conduct at your university decry genocide of Jews? And to the one, they all answer, well, it's, it all depends. It's all based on context. It's all based on its relativity. <laughs> Had Pilate waited and asked in sincerity, what is truth? Jesus probably would have told him what he said on other occasions. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. You will know the truth and it will set you free. But he asked the question and then abruptly departed, as if to say, there's no way I will ever know the answer to that question, what is truth? 
because there's no answer to be had. I mean, people who often talk about truth and try to feign some kind of interest in truth end up talking about knowing truth philosophically. And if you probe deeper, what you end up finding is that you're dealing with someone who's predetermined that there's no such thing as absolute truth. I, listen, I've had people say to my face, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I've had that enough that I've got, I got, I got, I got my response ready. Man, you know, what you just said, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. It kind of sounds like you believe that that thing you just said is an absolute truth, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. You just declared an absolute truth about something you don't believe. I mean, it makes no sense. You, you're, you're crazy. Do you see the disconnect here? You just gave me an absolute truth which you claim you don't believe in. Okay, enough on that. What we have is this about absolute truth. Jesus is absolute truth. Pilate thought it couldn't be found, so he dismisses Jesus and the truth, and in effect, dismisses Jesus from his life. The kingdom is disbelieved. Now, a word about Barabbas. According to one of the early church fathers, Oregon, or as the British pronounce it, Origen, Origen said that the full name of Barabbas was this. You'll love this. Jesus Barabbas, which means Jesus, son of Barabba. And Pilate's choice for the Jews was, which one do you want? Do you want Jesus, son of a human father, Barabba? Or do you want Jesus, son of God, the Father? And Origen claimed that it was always the human choice that we have to face between two kingdoms, the human kingdom or God's kingdom. And Oregon concluded, most people choose to opt for the human kingdom. Give us Barabbas, son of a human father. Just give me the human solution, the human thing. I don't want God ruling over my life. Yeah, God wants and allows real people to exercise their freedom of will, to say, Lord, I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done, and I surrender to you and it, to it. But he doesn't force anybody to do that. It's free will, choice, with potential horrendous consequences downstream. But for those who want Jesus as king, they're saying, yeah, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want you to reign over me, rule over me, may your kingship, your authority, your kingdom Come to this life of mine where I occupy space on this earth right now so that your kingdom's will will be done where I'm roaming on this earth. That's what I think it's saying. See, every one of us has a throne in our heart. Who's sitting on yours? Is it God? Is it Jesus in control of this life that you leave? Or is it his kingdom and his will reigning over you? Or are you still sitting in that throne, exercising your authority according to your will and your agenda. One thing Pilate did get right, although he actually didn't follow up with genuine faith, that's one thing he was when he declared, so you are a king. Yeah, Pilate, he is. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Been better off listening to your better half because the cross didn't jeopardize that kingship one bit. He's risen, and he's alive, and he's still keeping the universe ticking, and he's coming back to get us as our king, and then he's coming back to earth to glory and reigning and ruling, and that kingdom will never, ever end. And he will deal effectively and conclusively with all opposition to that reign. And with that in mind, let us pray, and you guys can bring up the communion, if you will. 
Lord, thank you for this time we spent with Pilate and Jesus. We now know who's in charge. Jesus knows he's going to die. He must die to pay for the sins of the world. That's why he came this first time. So this whole thing looks like it's being staged by the Jews and staged by Rome and staged by Pilate, but it's all part of God's ultimate plan that before the creation of the world, even God's cooking, you had ordained that this was going to happen, that Jesus was going to come from glory, come down here, live a life as a human being, suffering what we suffer, dying like we die, except his death was a substitute for our sin and the death that we are owed. And he took the penalty of that for us. And he gives us the opportunity to say yes to him, yes to truth, yes to life. So as we take communion, those of us who believed in you, followed you, even now we ask that you know that we still have sin as we walk this life. We're not perfect. Your, your perfection is what we are seen through by God as he looks at our lives. He sees us through the blood of Christ. That You have taken that sin away as a charge. Help us to actually begin to stir us to become more like you, to live more like you, to have you be our, not only our, 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 our idol, but also our, our life, that your core life courses through us, that we may live this world in a way that looks like you are living in it through us. Thank you, Lord, for everything you're doing. Thank you for the way you love us. Even though we know we are not worthy of it, you love us anyway. And because of that, we're able to take communion to celebrate what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.